Hello and welcome to Called the Queer. We're back for part two of Suksavan's story. So I was thinking, so I think, right, like my relationship with the LDS church is very, very interesting. Uh, and of course, it's okay for it to be interesting and it's okay for people to love the church. It's okay for people to hate the church. It's okay for people to feel whatever about the church, right? Because I think there's justifications as to why that happens. There is, there's reasons to it. And at the same time, I always find myself still somewhat gravitating toward it. So I, I've experienced this when I went to Chicago. So I went to Chicago recently and my, as I mentioned, my grandpa was relocated there, right? And there was moments in time when me and my cousin were like there and it was quiet. And we just looked at each other and we're like, do you feel, do you feel that? And we're like, yeah, I feel him. Like I feel him in this space here and like, or I feel like this place is familiar, right? I feel like there's a connection to Chicago and this is my first time being in Chicago. Why is that? Right. And there's a reason as to why that is, it's because our grandpa was there and there, he had a connection there. And I, I truly believe there's this connection that, we create not only from our own experience, from our family's experience as well, right? Especially people who have experienced trauma um, in a particular way. And so I think that same thing is happening with the church. You know, when I when I go into um, a church building, it feels familiar. It feels like I can be safe in that space and sometimes and sometimes I feel like I can't <laughs> depending on how big the crowd is or um who is in that space right and so it's been very very interesting for me to navigate um and I'm just hoping that the future generation of folks begin to process and talk about it and I think this is kind of the start of a really great conversation, right? The, I don't know, have you all talked about the Indian placement program before? So this is very, this would be really good to have folks like think about or process or even like look into. And I, and I think there are a lot of native people who are descendants of survivors of this program, of this of this um, policy, right? And so I think it it's really interesting and a unique experience, um, not justifying what was done um, because I think it was very violent and I think there needs to be something to be done, whether that is the church teach it or, which I don't think is going to happen, <laughs> or the or folks beginning to process what had happened and to Indigenous people. Because I do still think there is a set relationship that is happening that this conversation might actually help is that a lot of folks, there is still this weird tension or relationship between Indigenous people and what like white LDS people, right? Um, there's this sense of fascination toward Indigenous identity. There's this sense of 
what's the word like imagining or fetishization in terms of like as a native person you have a uh and i've heard this from folks i'm not just like making it up you have a better sense of connection to heavenly father through dreams or through um like right the, the continue this native trope of spirituality that is actually made up um by LDS people to believe that this is how Native people continue to live our life in teepees and continue to live, which um, is very interesting of like being the spiritual being, always being a medicine person um, and having that always connection of like, if I'm sleeping, I have a dream. Yes, we do believe like dreams have meanings, um, but it's really interesting to hear by white people that like, oh yeah, Native people have a better sense of connection to to Heavenly Father through dreams or they he communicates to you through dreams better than us white people. Or and I've heard that before. It's really interesting. Um, and so I, I think if we begin to have these conversations without having to feel guilt and just listen, right? Just know that this is a true experience that Native people have gone through with the church. And to also feel okay with people who have endured this program, survivor or descendants of survivors who endured this program, to feel some type of way about the church, right? I think when we have these conversations with practicing members of the church now, they're like, well, it's so much better now. Like um, there's a there's a new path or there's a new way. Uh, if you come back, it, things have changed, etc. I think it's okay for you to listen, acknowledge, still be friends if that's your friend with that person, and not have the church interfere with that relationship, right? Um, and understand that there is trauma and you can't heal it by going back to the trauma. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of healing. Um, I don't have all the answers. I don't think other people, uh, and, I, and I think that's the, another great aspect of this too, is like something for listeners, something for practicing LDS folks who want to change or, or continue to change the world. Um, I think trying to, one, listen to Indigenous people's experiences through who have gone through this program, but also don't put the work back onto Indigenous people to help you feel better, right? Um, to, to put all the work, without compensation especially, uh, put into the work of what can we do? What are the next steps for us to heal um, as both church members and LDS or as a indigenous people. Right. Um, and of course, right. There's that intersection between there's people who are both. Um, but I don't want it to ever be this taxing labor that is actually put back onto indigenous people who have endured this program again, you know, um, that's like, well, you solve the problem because I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> you tell us what we need to do. 
And it's like, well, first learn about what you have, what has been done by the church. And maybe you think about what can be done and propose it to us, right? And so there's a different ways of doing things instead of like, well, we know that we did this violence. What can I do to heal this violence, right? There there should be types of, um, <laughs> if people have listened to Sibling Rivalry uh, by Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange, I love them. They're two drag queens who both have one drag race. Um, a very raunchy, but very insightful in a lot of ways. Um, but Bob talks about there's a difference between apologies and atonement. Apologies is like you accidentally, I put this in air quotes, accidentally push someone over and they fall and scrape the knee. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Their knee still scraped, right? What can you do to atone? Bring them a Band-Aid, bring them something to like help heal that wound. Um, of course, you can't heal it right away. And that's the point, right? You can't heal trauma right away, but there's things that you can do to help. You can, as I mentioned, give them Neosporin or give them um, a Band-Aid, see what they need. Um, but you initially start by giving something as well instead of like them telling you, like you don't just sit there with their knee bleeding and being like, what do I need to get you? You automatically should know I need to get a Band-Aid, right? And so that's a good example as to like how we move forward from this, right? How do we begin to move forward? So you see the harm, or now you're listening to the harm of the Indian placement program. Um, now what are the next steps, right? And I think that's a great thing about that concept of living in a, limitless world is that right there's nothing off the tables actually we can do whatever we want to help heal each other yeah i i think that as you're talking Mm. about healing um it's interesting i did want to mention that my family is has a history in this program my grandparents were quote-unquote foster parents right and I found out recently, recently, very recently, that as a child, you were saying that the that you are wondering whether these children had more work or not. Um, I found out that I was left with a 16-year-old um, foster family member as a baby and... That person is no longer in our lives. Like, yeah, so um, it's interesting to learn about my own experience with this. Like, I have an experience with the Indian placement program of a person who um, I don't I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood, but I imagine it was probably an, an issue to have this person just not be there anymore. Um, and to not be part of the, this family in a way that we talked about and it made sense from a settler colonial perspective. I understood the mm-hmm. nuclear family. And so we talk about this person who mm-hmm. came in. We actually, my family had two foster yeah. kids and, and my grandma has a relationship with this um, person, but um, 
I, I don't. And I think it's interesting to have this conversation mm. with you. It's interesting to be in this space right now and to say, this is what's happened. Um, and I, I feel like I can acknowledge mm -hmm. that that is traumatic and horrible. And to hear when mm -hmm. you're talking about your mom mm -hmm. and the bus, mm -hmm. I, th I, I, you kind of, you kind of went through that rather quickly. And for me, it was very, very powerful to say they got on a bus mm -hmm. as siblings. They're driven to Provo. Right. And gone through, I think that this is like a very fascinating process that you're talking about going from room to room, being baptized and then being separated without knowing that you're going to be separated. Mm -hmm. This to me, that was, that was a really emotional thing to hear and for you to talk about because these are sorts of processes we see in lots of eugenics type movements of this separation, this transportation and separation that feels a 10 year old. Yeah. And they did younger. She's 10. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel emotional about that. Like I can't imagine mm -hmm. being there with your siblings and then just going home with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I hope that listeners, when they heard that story, recognize how how traumatic that that was. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I I think there's a lot of very interesting because, like, if you think ten is young, which it is, very young, right? Um, kids started in this program at kindergarten. By the way, <laughs> so. The whole purpose was to do public school off the reservation. And, and so that's why they did it in like Provo Unified School District or whatever it's called now. Um, and that's really interesting because I'm like, how much better is the Provo education than other places, right? Um, so it's it was really interesting. So they... So they would do the program right. for like K through 12, basically. And so imagine my mom was 10, but, and I think what grade is that? Like fourth-ish probably. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, and so there's younger people who are doing that. There's, and so I can't even imagine being what, five, four, and then being taken. That's, that is traumatic. Um. And I think you bring up this really great point, too, because I think there might be listeners or there could be listeners, right, who might have that same relationship is of like knowing someone who was a foster parent um, at that time. Um, and what does that mean? Does that mean that it is an experience or does that mean that it's a relationship that we now have? to each other right in in this way that's like that's like we've both have seen or now have heard both sides of kind of the experience process or the 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 Indian placement program 
And now what do we do now uh, with this knowledge? Like what do we continue to strive for, right? We want people to know this and we don't want anyone to ever feel in their guilt, right? To feel that, oh, I have bad ancestors or I have bad uh, relatives who took these native children and put them in foster care and was their foster family. No, we want people to know that this was a true history and there's multiple sides to a lot of things, right? We don't live in this binary world, as I mentioned. So what does it mean to listen to your own family's accounts of those stories and now listening to other people's accounts of those stories, right? There, as I mentioned, there were people who loved the program, who learned a lot from the program. There's a lot of people who experienced abuse in the program. And so there's there's so many different types of relationships. And I think it's important for us to be mindful and know about these types. Um, and that allows us to move forward, not us dwelling on what is it? my relationship was good or my um, my family was good to the Lamanites. In, in quotes, I put that in quotes, <laughs> uh, right? And so... I think it's like, I think the next step is, what do we do? What do we do now? And I think that is for members now to acknowledge, right? As I mentioned, and I gave that great analogy or example of like what what to do. So now you see the the wound bleeding yes. what what are the next steps what's your band-aid what's your neosporin what what's those next steps and then after that that's when we come together and help each other right um and so it's very interesting and a unique spot to be in because you would think that this happened in the 1800s or early 90 19 uh, in the na- early 1900s right no this happened what less than 20 years ago, what, 30 years ago now? Um, The last person graduated less than about 22 years ago. And so I think, I believe this program started in 1956. Maybe that's why I got my dates mixed up with the Relocation Act because they were kind of starting at the same time, right? I think it started earlier. I think it started in 47. Oh, did it? Yeah, it started in 47. Yeah. From, from what I've read anyway, the expert. Um, but like there, it was a mini program at the beginning. Yeah. And it developed more and more. And I think by 56, it was like very established. Mm, okay. And this, so this is a great, great segue into what to do next. Of course, as I mentioned, there's different things that we can do, but I think a really great starting point now is understand and protect ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act that I mentioned that gave the exempt to the LDS church for this program, right? It was existing native homes in 1978. There's already people in the program. They weren't in existing homes and in existing indigenous homes because they were in that foster care so they were exempt so they could finish the program so that law 
is actually going up to the Supreme Court if folks um, are are not aware. Um, and it's actually going to be contested this month. It was moved. November 9th. Oh, was it moved? So it might be after the... It might be after this um, podcast yeah. airs. I just looked it up today. It's it's yeah. November 9th. Yeah. So for folks who are unaware, the Indian Child Welfare Act basically protects Indigenous children from having this happen again. It's going up to the Supreme Court to um, basically say if they need it or not anymore. And the reason why is because what happens is now because there's existing native homes i put that in in air quotes uh native children if they get put into uh if they want to get adopted it actually they have to actually go through the tribe now so for example if someone is in foster care i believe they can be in a type of foster care but it can't be for too long and then the tribe ha- that gets to determine what happens. Um, and so basically, the tribe will adopt them back, um, which is the proper way, I, I, I believe, um, to bring back community members. But there's a case that happened recently um, where a Native person was in foster care. I don't think they knew that they were Native. And then when they... This family, a white family, wanted to adopt this native child. Um, the I believe the social worker was like, it, it's not going to be an easy process because we actually have to go through the tribe because we just found out that this person is native. And so they went through the tribe and the tribe said, we, want, we didn't know that this child was in foster care. We want them back. And so that child came back to the tribe and that family is now arguing that they are being discriminated against because they're white and not able to adopt this native child. And so this started this battle and now it has moved all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it is, I think Deb Holland is one of the people who is, who, if people don't know, she's our new uh, Secretary of Interior, the first Indigenous person, Indigenous woman, actually, to hold that position. And I believe Indigenous person uh, to ever hold that position, uh, which actually looks and oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is our relationship with the federal government as Native people. And so she is basically arguing that we need to keep it. We need to keep this this act in place and so now we don't know where it's gonna fall and a lot of native people are afraid um and want people to be aware because this can happen again and i think we need to make and uh, and hopefully allow folks to to be aware of this because it is important right it is important because we don't want history to repeat itself because it can if this if it gets thrown out. Um, yeah. And so I just wanted to bring that up because I think there's so many connections to it, right? There's so many connections. And so now many that perils. today, 
Thank you for bringing that up. If you don't know the history, mm-hmm. if you don't know that we've participated in this as Mormons, then you don't know the impact and the devastation that this has. Like your story mm-hmm. about who you are and where your mom ends up and and what she believes and how she feels, all of those things that are shaped because she was taken. Mm-hmm. If you don't know all of that stuff, you you might not have an opinion mm-hmm. about the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm-hmm. But now, at least no, knowing, right? Like we have we we talk about this in terms of emotions. Once you know your emotion, once you can name your emotion, it has less power. Once I think that 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 can apply to history as well. Once we know this history, we can better move forward mm-hmm. and and work through this because since we've erased this history, and I would say that the Mormon church has erased this history mm-hmm. uh, that the families that this, that, that participated in this program have erased this history. Mm-hmm. This history is, is being erased that if we aren't active in, in rejuvenating that history as Mormons, then we don't see the damage that we've done for this exact thing mm. that can take place next month. Mm-hmm. Sorry. That's yeah. everything that you just said, just <laughs> restated, yeah. but I just want to reaffirm exactly what you're, what you're talking about. Cause how could you not think about. Right. Right. And it's so the parallels. It's so interesting because I bring into these spaces, like my queerness my two-spiritness, my transness, my brownness, my indigeneity, right? All the multiraciality, right? All of these things into these spaces that are usually not welcomed in a lot of ways. And of course, I've seen people, um, and it's really interesting because I have argued and have experienced racism from the church um and when it's brought up they're like oh we have a brown member we have a black member okay (laughs) and it's still racist right there's still racism that is being done um and i think the same goes to queerness too right there's like there is rhetoric that is being done um being said in the church in particular, that is harmful to brown, black, queer, and trans people um, in, in a way that is unsafe. And people are like, I mean, we accept it. You just can't act on it, right? Um, and that's still violent. That's still violent. It's not fair for you to have your experience with your hetero partner um, and not other people to experience joy in those ways either, you know? Um, And then I think that often gets used onto reflecting about these types of conversations is looking at your own ward or even looking at your own um, stake, right? As like, do I see people 
for having these conversations in these spaces and why not? And why do I, if I do, right? Um, I oftentimes see it easier for cishet men of color to somewhat find their spot in the church than uh, queer people, than um, brown and black women in particular ways. Um, because it, there's this masculinity that they can play, right? There's this masculinity that the church favors actually uh, in a particular way that is actually kind of toxic. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. and that's something that I'm afraid for my nephews that's what I'm really really afraid is that they will get taught these things that is already a societal thing right but it, I feel like it gets emphasized a little more um, to be very individual to only care about yourself uh, even which is ironic because the church teaches you to care about others, right? And let's be real, um, capitalism, patriarchy, etc., all intertwine with with um, some of the teachings, and it's very, it's really interesting. And I that's what I one of the main things that I fear for my nieces and nephews is that I don't want them to feel as though they can't express themselves or feel a certain way or love who they want to love and also be brown, right? Um, I just want them to feel safe in a space. And I think that they're already doing that, which is cool. But I have to catch them sometimes because they're like, boys do this and girls do this. Or like, what? Who taught you that? <laughs> Where'd you learn that from? Um, and it, it is very interesting because like, my nieces and nephew are young, like they're young, young, right? And so I'm like, there's no other spot where they're learning this stuff because what they watch on TV is pretty, pretty litty. Like they yeah. watch gamers on YouTube. Um, and then sometimes they're like, oh, I can't do this because that's a girl thing. Or I can't do this because it's a boy thing. I'm like, what? Who, who taught you that? And I feel like it's coming from the church, <laughs> you know, like it comes from somewhere. And something that I'm like, I know for a fact it came from the church. Like someone's talking, someone is saying stuff to my niece. She wasn't in school. She was staying at home, right? Um, and so people were like watching her. And my brother is brown. Um, and I think he might be a little a little darker than me, but my sis my niece always draws him as a black man. And she made a Minecraft character, and he's a black man. When she has conversations with him, she's like, you're so much darker than all of us. And I'm like, where are you learning this from? Because you're not watching YouTube videos that say, like, that are saying that stuff. And you only ever are with family, or you're at church. Where is it coming? It has to be coming from somewhere over there. And I don't like it. Um, and so it was really impactful. So I always have to try to catch my nieces and nephews and how they talk. Because I'm like, 
oh, they're learning this from somewhere and I can't quite pin it. And I don't want to always put the blame on the church. And at the same time, there's teachings that have been taught intentional or not that do this violence. Right. And I'm sure you probably have seen it too. I think there's, there's something interesting about that. We haven't mentioned that this placement program I looked it up, yeah. by the way. Officially, it starts in 54. The first person was 47. Oh, okay. um, Like an informal, informal <laughs> Kind of like the Relocation um, Act. That was like, it started yeah. officially. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is 24 years. 24 years is a long time. 24 years before the priesthood and temple ban. Mm. Uh, is is lifted or whatever this is developed in a very racialized setting Mm -hmm. and yes that we have to also be thinking about in the back of our minds the the ways that race played into the church in terms of blood right like Mm. um the church has this belief about blood um and how and what we're thinking about quote using quotation mark laymanites becoming mm. something different mm-hmm. is very weird when it simultaneously there is this thing that's happening that is if you have quote unquote a drop of African blood right. then you can't be you can't go to the temple. So these two things are happening simultaneously and it's very racialized rhetoric and conversation taking place mm-hmm. that when Spencer W. Kimball is saying these things about people becoming more white, what does that actually mean in terms of mm-hmm. policy and mm-hmm. things for, for the church going forward? And all of that, I think, plays into what is going on with your yeah. nibblings. Yeah. That, that that doesn't just go away. That festers and it keeps coming out in different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, it, right Today in 2020, it sounds ridiculous that, right, you would think if you convert and you do all this, that you're just turned white. That was the actual belief. Like, members, some of them truly believed that if people did this program, indigenous people, Lamanites, air quotes, did this program, they would turn white when they graduate. Like, that was a solid belief. Isn't that wild? But today, we wouldn't think it. Back then, they were like, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. Um, And then sometimes it's interpreted that, like, right, they will be white in the celestial kingdom, which I'm like, regardless, you wanted us white. (laughs) You know, like, either one. And so people have used that argument where it's like, no, it was like the celestial kingdom. And I'm like, either way. You wanted us white. You didn't want us brown. And that's racist. <laughs> whether, it's, whether, whether it's cultural genocide here or cultural genocide there, it's still a genocide. And I think that queer people can relate to that, this yeah. idea that on the, in the next life, we're going to be straight right. and cis. It's so interesting. And it's like, why would you want to be white? Why, why would you want to be straight and cis in the celestial kingdom if you found love in this world? Why would I want to be brown if I 
love my culture in this world, right? It it doesn't make sense. The reasoning doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, and so I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, and something that I really like, it's just very cringy, right? Like I, I feel like today people wouldn't just be like, lemonade, right? I, I'm just still processing. I, I think I'm just like, wow, people really called Native people Lamanite. <laughs> That's fucked up. And I think it still happens. Yeah. Like, I think, I think we want to believe this is in the past, but I I have heard it still happening Yeah, in the very, very recent past. And this is what happens, I think, as Kate said earlier, when the church doesn't denounce its history mm. and things that they that was wrong mm-hmm. and we end up with not learning and not hearing about these things as people are dealing with the trauma that they've caused mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think I think I mentioned this but I was telling my sister-in-law who um, I believe she was born and raised in the church my whole life I, I, I've known her since I was in 6th grade um, and she was LDS then too, which she was in high school. And so even before that, when I was in fourth grade, that's when they got together, my brother and my sister-in-law. Um, and she was she was LDS then and has been since. But I don't know if she was um, converted or if she was um, um, born and raised in it. But she... I was telling her about it recently, like literally probably a year ago, maybe less than a year ago before I came to Australia. And it's nice because me and her have good conversations about um, just about my work and about queerness, about transness, about brownness, right, et cetera, indigeneity. And she is often like, if I didn't have brown kids, I don't think I would have to worry, you know, like I don't, I would get to position myself in a way that is very, why does it matter? Why do I care? And she's like, and that's the sad part is that for white people, we have to either know someone or have someone connected to you, like children to finally care. And she's like, and that's not how, And she was like, and that is really sad because I see a lot of people who have this view and think that she was like, I've learned so much from my kids because they're brown and multiracial. And, um, and so she's like, I, and I'm queer. So she's like, I'm just more aware of the world now because I'm so introduced to so much in the world now. Um, And that it's not okay for me to just like, sit back and not advocate, you know, because I have people who I care about and love that this affects, that these conversations affect, right? And so I can't just sit there anymore. But she's like, if I didn't know you all, though, I wouldn't have to care. I get to live in that privilege, right? For sure. And I think that's why talking about all these intersections is so important. Mm -hmm. Because can ignore when you do have privilege. Yeah. And we see that in every marginalized population that 
a lot of people don't care about queer individuals until someone they love comes out to them. Right. And so it makes total sense that your sister-in-law didn't really care or understand as much about marginalization with different races and ethnicities until her children brought right. it to her attention. Mm. So I, I so, so, so appreciate you taking the time to educate us and our listeners more about this particular intersection. Mm -hmm. I know there's so much more we could talk about with all the intersections that you're at. I've appreciated the education on this piece for sure. Yeah. Thank you. I do just want to ask yeah. um, and pivot a little bit away from the church. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've touched, we've touched a lot on, on the church, but the queer community also has issues uh -huh. with, um, with this sort of thing. I don't want to say this is all just a, a Mormon thing and let's blame Mormon stuff. Yeah. We also, as queer people also need to understand that we also perpetuate this. Mm. And something I learned from you as a non-binary person, I identify as non-binary mm -hmm. as a white person, which means something different mm. than identifying as non-binary not a white person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is a really good conversation that I, I've i had with a lot of folks and a lot of, like, queer, trans, non-binary folks and two-spirit folks is that first I want to set up, and this is my academic side coming out, I'm very... I. I feel like I'm very like easy to talk to and I try not to do like all this academic spiel. Um, but this, I think, will be helpful in us understanding some slight differences between language because I think a lot of people in particular use uh, terminology that might not be what they actually mean. For example, when folks... So in my dissertation, I write about queer spaces and how queer spaces can actually be healing and safe from violence. And I've gotten a lot of critique that's like, but some queer spaces can be violent though, like to other intersections of your identity, right? And I'm arguing that, that then that's not a queer space, actually. It's not a queer space. You can name it as a queer space, but it's not a queer space, right? There's two different things at place going on. And a great example of understanding the difference between queer and LGB um, um, is that, or gay and lesbian, for example, let's use that. The difference between queer and gay and lesbian is, I, I highly recommend uh, Normal Life by Dean Spade, who is a trans scholar. I believe he's a lawyer, um, but he wrote this book called Normal Life. And he talks about gay and lesbian is very, and, and he's white as well. He said that it's very much so geared toward assimilating into whiteness. And what he means by that is that there's a limitation to the advocacy work and the um, the end goal, right, of what it means to be queer in this world. He, he, he says that a great example is that 
gay and lesbian people advocate for same-sex marriage, yes, it's a great thing. And he even marks it as a great thing. But where are they at now? Where are they at now? They're happy in their in their relationships and they're 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 safe in those types of relationships being married, right? Queerness, on the other hand, that they argue is that and more. It's advocating for um, trans healthcare. It's advocating for um, homes for queer and trans and non-binary folks. It's advocating for so much more, right? That we're so limited to within gay and lesbian. And so that's what I mean by when I often use queer is that space. And that's a great space to be in. And that's a great space of of creating these intersections that there are um, disabled queer folks, queer and trans folks. There are um, queer and trans folks of color, right? So there's so much in that. And there's so much limited within gay and lesbian. And I try to stay away from it um, because I've often seen violence within those communities being perpetuated because they can oftentimes easily um assimilate into or not assimilate conform to white culture or uh patriarchal culture in in a lot of ways um and as like so that's a great start of understanding queerness and in and lgbtq but I also want to bring in Two-Spirit. And so I mentioned that I identify as Two-Spirit or I am Two-Spirit. Um, uh, fun fact on, um, we all know what TERFs are, the trans exclusionary radical feminist. Yeah, but maybe we want to explain for some folks. Okay, so TERFs um, are uh, deemed feminist. I put that in air quotes, who exclude transness from conversations of feminism and womanhood and etc right so um an example uh <laughs> i would name drop her jk rowling she's a turf and she yes the person who wrote harry potter <laughs> uh, is a turf and um she is very much so like you like if you are a trans woman, you're still a man, basically. That's what that's what the whole rhetoric behind TERFs are, is that cis women's rights are being impacted if we also include trans women into those conversations, which isn't true. Um, but anyway, so there's a big movement in Australia that I'm seeing that steps away from using the term identify. So instead of I identify as this, I am this, because it has been used a lot by TERFs to be like, you identify as that, but you're still not that, right? You identify as a trans person, but you're still a man, right? (laughs) Um, And so so it was really... It's been interesting to to have this conversation. So I am two spirit and I am queer, um, and so I use those all intersect uh, intersected. And two spirit is actually a newer term, as I mentioned, branched out from the '90s, 
during the um, American Indian movement in the 60s, 70s, that really formed this queerness. And then, as we know, in the 60s was the start of the gay rights movement, right, into the 70s. Um, And oftentimes, Indigenous people were not included in those conversations. And there's this battle of queerness. So they weren't, we weren't feeling okay in Indigenous spaces because of the queerness. We weren't feeling okay in gay spaces because it was anti-Indigenous. And so they were like, we need a new term because we've always had this term LGBTQ. LGBTQ is a colonial naming of, of, of gender, sex, and sexuality, right? And so we've always had that in our community. So two-spirit actually is an umbrella term of queer, but only for Indigenous people. And it recognizes that we have always had diverse gender, sex, and sexuality in our communities before. And so, um, and, and so it's a unique experience compared to, to um, I wouldn't say it's like far or vastly different, but there's intersections between uh, trans, queer, trans, and non-binary people of color that a lot of um, white, queer, trans, and non-binary people um, navigate the world, right? Um, And that's what that is particularly, particularly stating is that it is a different experience because there's there's things that we draw on of cultural reference of things before colonial reference or colonization of settler contact in the United States that validates our experience, which is true for white folks as well. But then there's that also framing that whiteness navigates the world that privileges whiteness, um, that also aims and 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 I've also seen it too where like where um some white uh queer trans non-binary folks uphold patriarchy um or uphold masculinity and it's very interesting and harmful right um but I think having conversations about it and of course not saying like and and it's not a, a a conversation that's like oh um queer trans non-binary people and two-spirit people of color are more oppressed than queer trans non-binary white people it's saying that these two are two different experiences based on our color based on our race right it's a unique experience when we navigate the system of settler colonialism that we begin to understand when we're having conversations with each other and not being like, oh, I'm more oppressed or or I have been impacted more by this, right? It's how do we begin to navigate these systems of violence because it's been done up to both of us. And also there's unique violences that is being done as well. I hope that answers the question. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's actually been, I, I appreciate you going through that whole history, especially with queer, because I think that this has been, that that is useful mm -hmm. for me to even understand my own experience as, as a white person. Like I have a, a white history with, with um, gender that, that it is different than somebody who's going to have a different experience with with gender yeah. um, previous to colonialism. I just really think you're, you're an incredible human, first Thank of all, you. an incredible scholar. And I, I feel very grateful that you are, you're willing to do this and also that we get to be friends. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I just <laughs> really like being friends yes, of course. and sharing stuff and sharing ideas and things like um, you've, you've really changed the way that I think about a lot of stuff and really impacted the way that I think about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me or even thinking or considering me for the podcast as well. Um, I really enjoyed my time with you all and like just sharing these thoughts and idea in a safe space and being able to process some of the trauma that my family has endured and continuing to process it, right? Um, so this is a great platform to even have those conversations because I think we've been silenced for so long about it that it's now like we should have conversations. We should talk about it. We should bring it forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. We just so appreciate it. And it's kind of that tricky place that sometimes I feel like we're in, um, in sharing stories and asking marginalized people to educate people about their marginalization. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a very tricky space for you in having the personal story and the academic and research. And so thank you for taking this time and emotional energy. And we would like to remind listeners, please don't reach out and dump your white guilt on marginalized individuals. <laughs> Go to spaces that you need to process other white people, do your research, do that, but don't go to marginalized people to dump your white trauma and mm -hmm. guilt after mm -hmm. hearing about this. So, yeah. but thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and educate us. Yeah. Even though you are having to do that emotional labor is something you shouldn't have to do. So mm -hmm. thank you for taking the time and energy to do that for us and our listeners. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, for folks who want to like continue to follow um, or keep up with some of the work that I'm doing, I often post a lot on my, uh, my Instagram, but it's my full name. Um, and I believe, will you have a descriptor? In, in this episode we'll link in the, okay we'll link it it'll be sure. in the descriptor it's just my full name so unique but it's a good one and I usually post a lot of my work there a lot of upcoming things that I'm doing um articles that I'm publishing and then of course some funsy stuff that I do so it's integrated within my personal and my academic life I don't like to separate them because I think I want people to see queer indigenous people of color um thriving in academic spaces and also having fun and being people and being silly and so i do that and so I, that's why i post on both both on one 
I love that, by the way. You're so so. Six Fun just got back from um, the U.S. and yeah. um, Disneyland, yeah, and watching you like go through Disneyland, I thought that was going to be your queer joy. I was for uh-huh. sure thinking that, that Disneyland was going to be was queer, a joy. queer joy. Too. I had so much, so many <laughs> queer joys, but on this trip, I were really reflected on like uh, I have learned so much from queer and trans people about loving myself and loving other people. That was such a queer, that, that's a good one. And then I, was, I think it just went by so fast. I feel like I was in Disneyland like a month ago, but I was there literally last yeah, week. <laughs> but that was a fun one. That was a fun one. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's very informative following you, but also very fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you would rate and review Called to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you would share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calledtoqueer.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Called to Queer. See you next time.